Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Recently on our show, the great storyteller from Benin, Ralph Mama, talked about the power that stories have to sustain us over time and how America has seen a renaissance in storytelling of various forms. Today on the show, two ways to connect to radio listeners through stories of very different kinds. Coming up later in the show, producer Jay Holt will share some of his stories that he's been gathering for the Words to Give By project, where local residents share their personal stories of giving. But first, Joe Richmond has been telling stories by putting recorders into people's hands for nearly two decades as part of his long-running Radio Diaries project. The stories have been heard on NPR's All Things Considered, and they're now part of a podcast on the Radiotopia Network. Joe will be speaking at Quinnipiac University this Wednesday, October 14th at 1 p.m. We've got more information about this on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Joe Richmond now joins us from the studios of NPR in Midtown Manhattan. Joe Richmond, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. When you first started doing this, putting tape recorders, and at the time they were tape recorders, into people's hands, what, what, what was in your mind? What were you thinking you were trying to accomplish with, with this uh, form of storytelling? I have to say I miss the days of tape recorders. Like, you know, <laughs> now we use flash recorders, but um, but back then with cassette recorders, nothing ever failed. Um, so I actually miss those days. Um you know, I, I think, you know, the, uh, part of it was just how do you get closer to a story? You know, I, I think it, th- the premise was if we can give tape recorders to people and strip away the kind of the middleman, me or or the host or the reporter, um, then you can get a little bit closer to the story. And, you know, with the, the stories that we did, it started off with a series called Teenage Diaries. And we just chose a bunch of teens around the country. And, you know, the idea was to tell very personal stories, but hopefully that they would be universal. So there was, you know, an uh, an undocumented immigrant. There was a girl who was coming out to her parents as gay. Um, a bunch of stories that, you know, maybe feel like a little bit kind of cardboard, two-dimensional stories when we hear them in the news, but hopefully when you hear from someone actually going through them, you know, in their own words and actually, you know, recording with their own reporter, you get a little bit closer, it becomes kind of a three-dimensional experience. How did you find that over time as you listened to the recordings that people were were giving you? Because obviously, you know, those of those of us like me who talk to people every day, we think, well, we'll be able to draw something magical out of someone that they never would have said themselves. But of course, I know that's not always true. At the same time, if you put a recorder in someone's hands, they will self-edit at times. They'll sometimes say things because they know they're being recorded because they're in control of the situation. Maybe you can tell some stories about that process because I know that that's both, I think, a liberating piece of how you do things and also maybe a bit of a challenge at times. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main ingredient really with these kind of stories is time. You know, when you first start working with someone, a lot of the stories we've done have been with teenagers, although we've also done projects in a retirement home and in prisons. But, you know, with teenagers, for example, there's this period in the beginning where they are just trying to sound like, you know, you know, um, Tom Brokaw on on, a, on <laughs> NBC News or something. And, and I think it's just 
a question of getting past that stage where they're more themselves, more relaxed, more who they are. You know, as far as the self-editing, I mean, I think that does happen, but we also have a, kind of an arrangement with the diarist that's different from the arrangement I would have with a subject of a, of a regular news story, which is that they can decide what goes in there. You know, I want them to record as freely as possible. So if later on they say, you know, that, that scene with my mom, there's something that I said in there that shouldn't be in the story, or the mom says that in the case of teenagers, uh, then it doesn't go in the story. So they have editorial control. And the purpose of that, you know, it's almost never exercised <laughs> in reality. But the purpose of that is just to, you know, make them feel like they um, have some hand in it, that they can trust the process as well. Well, let's listen to to some clips. And, and let's talk first about uh, Amanda, uh, one of the teenage diarists who you mentioned earlier. How, how did you find her and, and begin to tell her story? Yeah, well, this is we're going back to the this is the very first diary I ever did. So this is back in 96. This aired on NPR. And I found her through a friend who um, she had played this uh, kind of bit part in, in, in a in the movie Kids, actually, she was an extra in the movie Kids way back then. And the movie, the the premise, the stupid premise for our radio story was going to be her and her sister, how they were so different, and these two sisters who just are living very different lives. And her sister, Audrey, just kind of um, lost interest in, in doing the diary, and Amanda was just this wonderful character. So, And through her recording, you know, it was, it was going to be about her being gay and having and being in a very kind of pretty conservative Catholic family. But it really became much more about her and her parents' relationship. And, and you know, I think that's one of the great things about working this way is that you can go in with certain ideas. I can go in with certain ideas. But you hand over the tape recorder and you give it enough time and things happen that you that I didn't expect, that you wouldn't expect, and that I would have never even thought to ask if I was a reporter in the scene. So um, and, and that's those are the special moments. And I think Amanda's story certainly had had one of those. It's not natural, and I've mentioned that to you several times, that is not what God intended. And you don't know this, but how come when I was, like, younger, I felt this way? All girls feel that way. Since I was in first grade? Yes. Little girls feel that way all the time. You felt that way, too? Yes. That, that's common. How do you feel about it, Dad? About what? How do you feel about me? Fine. What about it? Sexuality-wise. Oh, you're you're 17 years old. You're you're not definite. You're not formed in your ways. Someone at 17 does not know what is at the other end of the line. Anybody? How do you know? <laughs> There's just not enough life that you've seen. You haven't seen enough. You haven't done enough. You have not lived. Well, over two years and then uh, five months have gone by, and I that's think what I believe. I think if a good fella came by and really treated you right, your mind would switch. My mind will switch. So it, it's all in my mind. It is. It's all in your mind right now. You but, just don't say, well, this is how I feel, and this is how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. I'm not saying that's how I'm going to be for the rest of my life, and I'm not saying that I'm not going to have sex with a guy. I'm saying that I do. I want to go and have sex with a guy. It's not happened yet. I hope not. No, it's not. But, I, I mean, I'm going to. I'm not going to, like, deny myself of well, that. Well, that's what Miss White said. Don't deny yourself of that. And you may find, when you do that, that your whole outlook may change. <laughs> it's just not like, oh, this is somebody's decision. This, They don't really know what they want right now. There's guy. I mean, I've been out with guys while I've been going out with Dawn. Dawn's been out with guys while she's been going out with me. I mean, we, we're so, like, we're really close. 
and there's like a love there. More for me towards her than her towards me, you know, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But we're with each other, you know? Well, maybe that's just a good friendship. You love friends. Yeah, but I don't do what I do with Dawn with friends. Do you know what I mean? You don't do what you do with Dad with friends. That's Amanda speaking from the original uh, Teenage Diaries series from Joe Richmond, founder and executive producer of Radio Diaries, who joins us in the program uh, to talk about Radio Diaries almost 20 years into this project. He'll be speaking at Quinnipiac University coming up Wednesday, October 14th at 1 p.m. More information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. There's so much to hear in there, Joe, and there's so much to talk about. One thing I, I guess I'll just say right off the bat is, you can tell it's 1996, right? Because I don't, right? I don't even know if that same conversation could be had in American households now because of the changing attitudes towards everything uh, in society. But I mean, what do you think when you hear that now? Well, exactly right. You know, a couple of years ago, we did this project called Teenage Diaries Revisited, where we went back to five of those original teenagers, and they did diaries now in their 30s of their grown-up lives. And most of the people, you know, you know, their lives had changed a lot. They had been through a lot. You know, the stories were interesting and for various reasons. But Amanda's, she hadn't changed that much, but the world sure had. Her parents sure had. And it's, that's what I think about. Just, just like you say, listening to that, it's like, wow, what a timepiece. Now her mom, who, um, her mom counsels other parents who have kids who are coming out. And, you know, her parents are in a very different place. And, of course, you know, our country is in a very different place. Mm. Uh, did you think when you were doing these original Teenage Diaries that you would plan to check in with them 16 years later or somewhere down the line? You know, I didn't. I, I didn't have any notion of that except for the fact that, you know, one of the inspirations for the Teenage Diaries series was the 7-Up, you know, 14-Up, 28-Up series <laughs> that Michael Apted did. I was kind of obsessed with that with that project in college. And so I think it was embedded in the DNA of this project from the beginning. But um, but no, it wasn't till much later. Actually, it, it happened when I was I had lost touch with one of the diarists, Melissa, who had was a teen mom and had had a, you know, she, her story was about having a baby as a teenager, and then she disappeared, and I did, was lost touch with her for a decade, and then out of the blue she got in touch with me, and she had been through a lot, and um, it was through being in touch with her again and thinking about doing a story, a new story with her that. Um, I decided to check in with a lot of the diarists. Some I lost touch with, some I, I'm in regular touch with, and you know I chose five of them to do new stories. Let's actually listen to a bit of Melissa's story, if we would. And again, M Melissa's hometown is New Haven, and we've actually talked about her story in the past on, on the program. But let's listen to a little bit of, of Melissa here from the Radio Diary series. I remember when I was 10, one of the homes I was in, they used to send us to the summer camp. Camp Squanto. I just remember the orange Indian t-shirt I used to wear on the top of my bathing suit. And um just want to make sure you were a good swimmer. And for the test, we had to tread water. You just treaded water until you just couldn't tread water no more. And I remember it was about 12 of us. You see one by one. You see one person tread for five minutes. Next person, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And I think at 35 minutes, the last three people were there. And they were struggling. And this boy was looking at me like, this girl's still treading. And he gave up. I treaded for almost an hour and a half that day. 
And I would have kept treading, but they told me to stop. That was probably one of the happiest days of my life. I never thought about it before, but my whole life is treading water. You know? You have no support under your feet. You have no support over your head. You can't hold on to nothing. You're just out there. Keep it moving. That's Melissa from Radio Diaries. Um, Joe Richmond joins us from NPR Studios in Manhattan to talk about his series. So, so Joe, what, what happened to, to Melissa over the years? What did we find out about her life? Yeah, so that that's the very end of her adult diary that aired um, on NPR more recently. And you know, I think what you you know what's helpful to know leading into that you know about that clip is that I mean Melissa is just as much of a survivor as you could possibly imagine. She was abandoned when she was two, spent her whole childhood in and out of foster homes and group homes and and that sort of thing. And when was actually emancipated at the age of fifteen, she was given you know legal. Um, uh, guardianship of her of herself at the age of 15 by a judge. So she was living on her own, working and going to school and having her own apartment at the age of 15, 16, and then um, got pregnant at the age of 17. And so that's, that's when um, I met her and then we did the story. So this is, you know, in her 30s, she now has two kids and she, you know, the story is about everything that she's gone through, um, mainly the health of her son, very serious kind of problem issues with her, with her son. And but just also about being a single mom and just surviving and you know just not making much money, barely getting by, and uh, being a survivor. So that's that's the end of her story. And she um, she's amazing. I mean, she's just an amazing, amazing woman. One of the things I I always loved about having Radio Diaries appear in NPR programs is that, and we'll talk about your podcast now and the ability to find any of these stories anytime you want um, online. But inserted into the middle of a busy news day. That story and someone who we met years before and whose story has all these twists and turns saying, you know, life is just treading water. I don't know. It gives a kind of a context and perspective for all the other news stories that you hear around it, for everything else that has to do with policy or politics, like putting Melissa right in the middle of all things considered makes the whole thing go, hmm, okay, that's what it's all about. I think that's what I always love about hearing your stories on on the radio, you know, not just online. I am totally with you. I feel exactly the same way. And, you know, we do this podcast and there are wonderful things about the podcast, you know, in terms terms of the type of stories we can do and a little bit more flexibility and reaching, you know, new listeners in different ways. But to me, there is nothing that replaces, you know, podcast listeners are going to find the story. And I love when these stories pop on all things considered in between the news of, you know, Syria and, you know, the debt debate that you hear this personal story of this woman who's, you know, uh, you know, these diaries. And I think that, um, you know, finding stuff today that, that you weren't looking for is getting harder and harder. And I think it's so great and important because that's what I love. I love to be surprised by something that I read or, or hear on the radio or whatever, the stuff that I wasn't necessarily looking for. We're talking with Joe Richmond, who's the founder and executive producer of Radio Diaries. They've been coming to your radio for almost 20 years now. Joe's speaking at Quinnipiac University this Wednesday, October 14th at 1 p.m. We've got more information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back where we live. 
This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're talking about storytelling. In just a little bit, we're going to be joined by Jay Holt, WNPR producer, who's been gathering stories for the Words to Give By Project, local residents sharing their personal stories of giving and kindness. But right now, Joe Richmond, founder and executive producer of Radio Diaries, will be speaking at Quinnipiac University in a few days. More information on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Today in the program, we're talking with storyteller Joe Richmond. He's founder and executive producer of Radio Diaries. He'll be speaking at Quinnipiac University this Wednesday, October 14th at 1 p.m. We've got more information at our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Of course, for years, you've heard Joe's Radio Diaries, where he's put tape recorders into the hands of teenagers and other people and let them tell their own stories on all things considered. He also has a podcast on the Radiotopia Network. He's also produced a series of documentaries, historical documentaries in, in Joe, including this one about the life and times of Nelson Mandela. Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we do a lot of historical documentaries at Radio Diaries, too, and, you know, with where we sort of non-narrated programs. So try to have that same sort of spirit where you're kind of experiencing the story as much as possible. You know, this was just one of my favorite projects I've ever worked on, um, this five-part series about the history of apartheid. And, you know, originally it was going to be more of a bio of Mandela. It, it ended up, you know, the man in a sense became less interesting than that whole chapter of history, really. So he's at the center of it, but we just got to do so many wonderful interviews with so many people connected to that history, and the archival tape was so amazing. Um, so, you know, the whole, I, I you know, I, I love just that whole chapter of history. It's it's so, you know, in a way, it's this black and white story that isn't anything but black and white. Um, there's all these kind of like nuance and details as you dig in. And I think um, this clip is about the trial, the trial that actually sent Mandela and his comrades to, uh, to Robben Island. A remarkable demonstration by a crowd of several hundred outside the courthouse in Pretoria. Nelson Mandela, his wife you just saw, accused with the others of plotting sabotage to overthrow the South African government by force. From day one of our arrest, the police drummed it into our heads, you are going to die, you are going to hang. And that remained their attitude right through the trial. (coughs) Firstly, the state alleges the planned purpose thereof was to bring about chaos, disorder and turmoil in the battle to be waged against the white man in this country. We knew that there was no hope of getting an acquittal. The question was, what do we do with the trial? They all got a shock when our lawyers announced that Mandela will not give evidence, but he'll make a statement from the dock. He stood up and he proceeded to deliver the speech. I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. And I knew he was going to say, in effect, hang me if you dare to, Mr. Judge. But only when he said it. It is an idea for which I hope to live for. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. It was terribly moving. Nobody said anything. Even the judge didn't know what to say. I knew it was a moment of history. He emerged then as a great leader. As we were being flown uh, to Robben Island, 
one tried to accept the reality that we may in fact spend years in prison. But we believed very strongly that we would not die in jail. We would return. But uh, we stayed there for 27 years. That's from a Radio Diaries documentary about the life of Nelson Mandela. The hearing his voice, Joe Richmond, is one of the most powerful things, obviously, in in this piece. But it also makes me think of how a young nation like South Africa, in some ways, you're able to to hear the voices of the great leaders. Um, we don't have recordings of the fathers of America, right, with saying all these famous things that we read in <laughs> textbooks. But it's as we hear Nelson Mandela say those words about perhaps being put to, to death, you're, you're really listening to the birth of a nation, right? You're listening to the words right there, and that's the power in it, I think. Well, it's actually interesting. That speech, that, that, it's the famous Ravonia speech, um, that had been um, lost during the whole, you know, during, during the apartheid years, people didn't know about it or know that it had been recorded or know where it was. And it was after Mandela's election or after actually the, the trans, after he was released that um, it was discovered and they, it was on Dictabelt. So this is a long story. I won't go into detail, but um, they had to, it was quite, quite a mission to just figure out how to trans, you know, how to, um, to digitize this stuff and to restore it. And so, um, the, you know, this incredible speech, which is really what made Mandela Mandela. I mean, this was the speech that kind of brought him onto the world stage in a sense right before he went to prison and then would be silenced for 27 years. So it's an incredible historic document that goes, it's like an hour long speech. It's crazy long. <laughs> um, and it's amazing. I, I will say just to, um, just to brag a little bit, this, this series that, that aired on the radio, um, we packaged as a kind of a CD audiobook, And just this year, you know, it was a, a surprise to many, <laughs> me mostly. It was named an audiobook of the year, beating out uh, Oprah and Amy Poehler, among others. So <laughs> it's it, it's an honor that radio producers don't get very often <laughs> to get an audiobook of the year. But uh, but we were very happy about that. And that, that's a very good thing indeed. I, I, I think one of the things that's interesting about putting together a documentary maybe for the the people of today, for great, uh, whether it's politicians or thinkers of today, is that you'd have so much to choose from. I mean, you could sift through not just an hour-long speech that you might have to digitize, but, I, I don't know, piles of Facebook posts and, and Twitter and Snapchats of them and YouTube videos. And, and I wonder if there's something different that you see about the documentary of the future, given our propensity to document every single moment of our lives, whether we're famous or not famous, whether it's a radio diary or whether it's, a, I don't know, a documentary in 30 years of, of Barack Obama, there's almost so much to choose from that it changes for you, the storyteller, I think the process a bit, doesn't it, Joe? Well, I mean, this is, you know, I mean, yeah, just as you say that, I'm feeling like overwhelmed and frightened. <laughs> My <laughs> apologies. <laughs> the, uh, by all the archival possibilities. But, you know, I, I, the thing about like, I mean, I'm a total archival tape geek. I love going through this old stuff. And, you know, for, especially with this Mandela project, we were able to spend weeks in these basements of SABC archives and other archives. But the thing is, you know, so much of what gets saved is like the perfect moment right when the speech begins or right when this, you know, moment begins. And 
you know, and to really create a scene, to really create a, a, a great, you know, to really bring you back there, whether it's radio or any kind of medium, what you want is that weird interstitial stuff. You know, there's you hear those coughs in the courtroom in the clip we heard or the kind of like fumbling as they're getting up to the microphone or kind of the, the backstage moments. And those are the ones that don't usually get preserved and I think still, will, you know, may not be as preserved as much. But those are the things that, you know, that we look for. Joe Richmond is founder and executive producer of Radio Diaries. He'll be talking about his work at Quinnipiac University this Wednesday, October 14th at 1 p.m. If you'd like more information about how to attend, go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Of course, they've got a great podcast on the Radiotopia Network. He joined us today from NPR Studios in Midtown Manhattan. Joe Richmond, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for joining us on Where We Live. Oh, thanks so much, John. It was really a pleasure. Coming up next, producer Jay Holt will share some of his stories for the WNPR project Words to Give By, where local residents have been talking about personal stories of giving. Stay with us where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll revisit two fascinating chapters of legal history in Connecticut. We'll hear from a reporter who befriended the serial killer, Michael Ross. And we'll also hear a history of some of the amazing trials of the New Haven colony from back in the 1600s. Hope you can join us. Radio Diaries has inspired lots of projects to capture the voices and stories of people from all parts of society. Earlier this year, WNPR joined with the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving to launch a project called Words to Give By. Joining us now to talk about the series is producer Jay Holt. He's the producer of the Words to Give By series, and it's good to see you once again, Jay. Thanks, John. It's good to see you, too. If you want to listen to Words to Give By, it's on Wednesdays at 3.04 p.m. on WNPR. You can also find it on wordstogivebuy.org. Tell us about these stories. I mean, what, what were you hoping to get from people? We spoke with over 170 different people uh, in 150 interviews last March, pretty much. And all of the interviews were based on generosity and giving. And I was looking to, to hear why the stories that people came to tell were important. What was it that made these stories stick with somebody and made somebody think, this is a story that I should go share with somebody? How did it change how they thought about things? We spoke with a lot of really great people and heard a lot of wonderful stories. We're going to hear some of the stories. The first one is from Elizabeth Bradley. Could you just set this up for us and tell us about her? Yeah, you bet. Elizabeth Bradley 
Uh, she experienced chest pains. She had worked in radio, had done a lot of interviews with people, and she knew from talking with people that she should probably get this checked out. Went in the first time, and the results, they thought it was just stress. Then she went back because it was still hurting and went to the hospital. The doctors uh, had her go in for a routine procedure that was supposed to be very low risk, but something did go wrong, and the end result was that she was going to need a heart transplant. She spent a year and a half then hooked up to this machine called a BiVAD, that kept her blood pumping. She was able to go home on it, but she spent a, a year and a half, and then eventually she heard that she got a new heart. Well, finally, one day, it was Father's Day of 2006, my husband's cell phone rang, and it was Mass General, and they said, we found a heart for you. Get here right away. And we all looked at each other, and this was one of the last times I was with my father, and he said, what are you waiting for? Go. Go to Mass General. So we got in the car, and we went. And then I got really scared. The idea of going through this surgery where they were going to remove my heart and put someone else's heart in my chest was so frightening. All my favorite nurses were there for me, and they cleaned me down and put antibiotic all over my body. And then I had to wait. And I was sitting in that waiting room listening to helicopters go by. I could hear them go by, and I kept thinking, does this one have my heart in it? One of them was going to have my heart in them. And I kept listening to them going by. And then they put me to sleep. And I woke up about 12 hours later, and I could feel blood rushing to my feet. My feet had been so cold that winter, but I could feel, I could feel the blood, and I could feel the heart in my chest. And while I was on the BiVAD, there was no heartbeat at all. It was just a machine running. But now I could feel this heart in my chest. Hmm. That, that's Elizabeth Bradley speaking in the series Words to Give By on WNPR. The producer of the series, Jay Holt, is here. First of all, I, I love her description of the blood rushing back to her feet. And it's also great to hear Beth's voice again. As many people know, Beth Beth was a, a longtime radio voice in Connecticut. And, and I've worked with her in the past as well. And just to hear her voice strong again is is a great feeling. Yeah, the imagery that she shared in that story, it struck both Dan Schultz, my associate producer for the project, and I as we were hearing it as well. Just like that that image that you said and like the, the switch from living for a year and a half with just a whirring to having a heartbeat again was, was something that stuck with both of us. She did a very memorable interview on the Colin McEnroe show that won a national award a few years back and something I'll have to go back and listen to. You brought us another story from Abdul Rahman Mohammed. We did. We did. We produced a story out of his interview for the series that has already aired on the radio. And this is a, a different portion of his interview. Some of the stories, like Beth Bradley's, were very serious and somewhat profound. And Abdul's story is as well, if you're able to find it on the, the website. Uh, but this is from a, a different part of his interview. And I asked him if he had any message after uh, sharing all the stories that he did prior to this. And he has a lot of them that he wanted to share with his children, if he wanted them to take anything away from the experiences that he was sharing. And this is what he said. A message that I, that I mean, I think you hit a tone for me for my for my children especially, right? But I, I guess everybody can run with it. But a message that I would give about you know generosity and kindness and giving is that a lot of times people think the big thing they do. So I gave a million dollars to somebody, right? Not me, but somebody. If somebody did that, right? They gave a million dollars. They would think that that's the thing that makes the impact. But what I find is that it's really those things that we forget that we do. It's like when you're just being your normal self. So what I would say to my kids, like what I'm hoping I'm doing with my kids is just showing them. You know, I, I've, I watched my dad do 
tons of just things where he would end up like not having lunch or something because he gave to somebody else. I watch my mom care for people and different things like that. And so to me, sometimes the message is cool, like to be able to say it, but to be able to show it is the is the real thing. It's like because we know that uh, our children are watching. I'll give you a good example. The other day, I was in the house with my wife. A song came on, and I started moving up, dancing with her. And I was kind of like pulling my cufflinks. I had some cufflinks. I was fooling around with them. And out of the corner of my eye, I see my son, and he was doing the exact same thing I was doing. He was dancing and moving, holding his. He didn't have any cufflinks on. But the point is, is that I could say to him, "Son, when you when you find somebody you love." Treat her nice, laugh with her, fool around with her sometime. And and that message could sink in or it could go right over his head. Or I could treat his mom nice and, and treat her kind all the time and try to be a good man. And maybe he'll just copy it. And so sometimes in life, it's easier to just replicate what somebody else has already done. You know, just watch the people that are good and try to be like them. And and I'll be honest, that's what I do most of the time. I see somebody that's doing something good and say, hmm. I'm going to try that. And so I don't know, you know, words are great, but actions to me uh, speak much louder. Mm -hmm. Actions speak louder. It's it's from the series Words to Give By. Uh, It's from WNPR, and it's been uh, airing all year long in collaboration with the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you want to hear more of these stories, go to wordstogiveby.org. The producer of the series, Jay Holt, is here. We're talking about storytelling on the program today. That's another great story, and it's a voice I've not heard before. The next voice, though, uh, Jay, is a voice that we have heard on our air before, our friend Susan Campbell, the great writer and reporter and columnist. Yes, indeed. For most of the interviews that we did for this project, we did pre-interviews with all the folks before they came in. So we had an idea of what we might hear when we spoke with them. Uh, But we were not able to do a pre-interview with Susan, but as probably listeners who are familiar with her might also know, I I had no fear that she'd have plenty of stories that would be applicable to our project. Uh, But I was totally surprised by the one that she did choose to share that day. And it had to do with the burning down of their house. And we stood and watched the house burn down. Uh, my husband, who was a firefighter, and felt like he couldn't go to work for weeks after that. He was embarrassed. We were in Marlboro, a different town than he worked in. Uh, he called for a fire truck. They arrived quickly, but while you're watching your house burn down, it feels like it's taking hours. It didn't. They were really good. And I remember my sons starting to cry, and I just wanted them to be okay. And I remember telling him, no, this is cool. <laughs> this is great. Look, we're going to be like immigrants. We're going to, all we have is a coat on our backs. And now we have to rebuild in this country. It's going to be great. And I'm totally lying because I was thinking that's our stuff. And it was stuff. And I never thought anything differently. But the windows were blowing out and they'd remember, my stuffed animals, it's okay. We're going to get new ones. Great, right? Insurance. I explained insurance so that by the time the firefighters came, they went running up to them and they said, our house is burning down, but it's okay. We're going to get new stuff. And I thought, oh, my God, that's not the message I meant for you to have. But that is, in fact, what they, eight and nine years old, or nine and ten, drew. So we spent the night in a hotel. Um, and my husband and I went into the bathroom and turned on the water and, and talked seriously about what what could have happened for about three minutes, and then, okay, now what? And my sons went with their aunts that next day, and my husband and I went back, and we were on our way back to Marlboro. We'd stayed in East Hartford, 
And he said some of his friends were going to come and help us clean up. And I'm thinking, great, what? <laughs> you know. And we're pulling back up to what used to be our house, and the, the, the street's lined with pickups, and I'm mad. Because I'm thinking, these people are coming to look at the ruins of my house. That is so rude, which is completely hypocritical, because I grew up in Tornado Alley. And as soon as the clouds part, you get in your truck and you go see who got hit. So payback's awful. So we're getting, it's like a half a mile from my house, and there are these pickups, and I'm getting more and more angry. Like, okay, that's just the tacky to do that. And it's the firefighters and their families on their days off who've come, and sometimes not their days off. They came to help us pick through. And there was already this pile of bags of clothes, and we got there. It was early. So people came when it was still dark to bring clothes, and it was nice stuff, like name-brand boys' clothes, not the stuff I bought. And the casseroles started, and there was chocolate-covered cherries, and there was... Food, I, I knew chocolate-covered cherries existed, but I didn't know you could actually make them. There was chocolate-covered strawberries. There was this great sausage and peppers dish that I, it was the best thing I ever ate. My neighbor next door, with whom I didn't have a relationship, we'd wave, brought over a blue tub with white towels rolled up. And it's hard to, to stress how important seeing something clean was because everything smelled like it had been burnt and it was all charred and... Uh, people from work, from the current, took up a collection, and they handed me more money than I've ever held in my life. <laughs> it's like I kept saying, like that first night, we have insurance, we're okay. And we were, we were treated very well, but we ended up, when I ran out of that house, all I was thinking was, you got to, you know, get the kids out. And when I ran out of the house, I didn't realize we were running into to the arms of all these people. <laughs> Who cared about us? That's our friend Susan Campbell, uh, the great writer and reporter, telling a story about how 20 years ago when she was working at the Hartford Current, her house burnt down and how the community rallied around her. It was part of the series Words to Give By. Uh, the producer, Jay Holt, is here. Well, I'm glad you brought us that story. It's a story I had not heard from Susan. I've known her for some time. Yeah, it it totally took me by surprise. And it's clearly still emotional for her to recall it 20 years later, but she was uh, she wanted to be very clear that it's not the loss that was what still strikes her. It was the incredible generosity and kindness of the people that helped them out in that time. What's the last story you brought us, Jay? The last story I brought is from a man named Brent Robertson. And just a couple of years ago, he realized that he was not in great shape and he wanted to get back in better health so he could take better care of himself, so he could take better care of his kids. And he decided to start running. And when he did that, he started posting his his workout results on Facebook. And a friend of his saw his heart rate in this running. He's like, man, you really need to get that checked out. That's not normal. And he went to a cardiologist and it turned out that he did have a heart issue that needed addressing, he wound up establishing a really close relationship with his cardiologist. The way Brent saw it, that man took the time to get to know him and understand what he wanted to do, what he was doing with his life, what he wanted to work towards before making any plan to proceed. And the time spent with him, he was really struck by and it's kind of changed his outlook on life a bit. And this is his takeaway message from the experience that he has had. You know, there was... My mentor, um, Mel Toomey, said to me one day, or, or, or provoked the idea, he suggested the idea long ago, I'd say four or five years ago, to me that um, we as human beings can't fundamentally exist on the external without, without at least another human being. 
Um, we can't see, we'll never see the back of our own head. We'll never see our own face outside of a mirror or photograph. Um, uh, we exist uh, based on how we occur to others, right? Um, and so the greatest gift, that suggests the greatest gift you can bestow on another is to allow them to exist fully expressed right in front of your eyes. And to do that is a gift of listening, right? It's all about um, allowing giving space for that other human being to emerge, giving them a trusted uh, environment in which they might be able to share themselves with you in a way that they didn't even consider. And that those are those moments where you're caught by surprise when you're like this conversation we're having, right? I, I don't know where it's going to go, but you're providing a space for me to share how I exist and, and you're letting me exist because you're listening to what, I ha- what I'm saying. You're not listening to the words, you're listening to the meaning. Mm. That story that he shared kind of gets to the heart of what I love about radio and one of the things that was great about this project. It was really wonderful to be able to sit down with so many people and just share a a space and time and hear what they wanted to come and share with us. Jay Holt is the producer of WNPR's Words to Give By series, which you can hear on Wednesdays at 3.04 on WNPR and WNPR.org. You can also find out more about the series and listen to a whole bunch more at wordstogiveby.org. Jay, thanks so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Our program was produced today by Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, and Josh Nalea. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. And the executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankowski. Thanks so much for joining us. 